Welcome to the Pharmacy Future Leaders Podcast with your host, Tony Guerra. The Pharmacy Future Leaders is part of the Pharmacy Podcast Network, focusing on pharmacy student perspectives, interviews, and the future outlook of our pharmacy industry. This is Danielle Ofri from the Bellevue Literary Review, and you're listening to the Pharmacy Podcast. Welcome to the Pharmacy Podcast Network. I'm your co-host, Tony Guerra, for the Pharmacy Future Leaders Podcast, broadcasting from DMAX Health and Public Services Building on the Ankeny, Iowa campus. Connect with me on Twitter at Tony underscore PharmD, or check out my Tony PharmD YouTube channel, where you can find over 800 videos on top 200 drugs that support my audiobook, Memorizing Pharmacology. Today, we are speaking with Danielle Ofri, MD, PhD, and Associate Professor at Medicine at New York University School of Medicine. But her clinical home is at Bellevue Hospital, the oldest public hospital in the country. She's founder and editor-in-chief of the Bellevue Literary Review, and her newest book is What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear, an exploration of doctor-patient communication and how refocusing the conversation between doctors and patients can improve health outcomes. So, Danielle, thank you so much for coming on the Pharmacy Podcast. Thank you so much. It's great to be here. Okay. Uh, Everyone's Leadership Road is a little different. How did you work your way to becoming a leader in the patient-doctor patient relations space? Well, I, I would say certainly I didn't, that wasn't the career path I started out in. Okay. In fact, I have a PhD in pharmacology. I was an MD-PhD student, and I was studying opiate receptors and planning to be a bench researcher all my life. But then I did my internship at Bellevue Hospital in internal medicine and I fell in love. And I think what I fell in love with were the patient stories, the connection with, with the patients. And while I still love research and science, I, I ended up in clinical medicine because of that. And then over time, I, I remember that the stories were so captivating. And I felt that I should be writing these down. I, I knew they were so unique, but there wasn't time or space. And, and partly we were too busy, but also I think they were too close to the emotional bone. It wasn't until I took off about a year and a half after residency that I began to take the time to write down these stories. And that really then created the sort of side interest of mine of writing patient stories, both in uh, journal form and then eventually in book form. Okay. And just um, I'm sh- practically, how do you deal with HIPAA? Because I'm sure many authors would want to know how do you, uh, you have these great stories, um, how do you handle getting through HIPAA so that you can share these stories? Well, um, so my first few books, I wrote them years and years after they occurred. So most of the patients weren't even track downable or, or, or even alive in those cases. Not that their permission wouldn't still be critical, but I had often no way of tracking them down. And so in those cases, I changed their names and identifying characteristics. And I also um, made sure that anything that I thought would be uncomfortable for the patient or family, should they recognize the patient to be, to be out, um, to take unless it was necessary. And ultimately I wanted the rendering to be respectful, uh, in that the patient's something to teach us and that's treating them with respect. And if I thought it wasn't, then I wouldn't publish it. If it was in any way degrading or denigrating, it, it wouldn't be published. Going forward, um, I try to obtain consent from patients in, in real time. Um, um, or there are times where I use just the skeletal outlines of the story where it's very generic and, and the actual patient themselves wouldn't be identifiable. So a patient with diabetes, a middle-aged man, 
you know, that's very, very nonspecific. Sure. So okay. I, that's really how I do it. Okay. Um, let's start with this. As a best-selling author, many are going to think your life is absolutely perfect. You're living in New York. You're a physician, um, dual degree. What was your most difficult moment as an author or writer that might help others uh, appreciate the struggle to get to where you are? I just need to stop laughing a little bit. It's <laughs> uh, a great characterization. I wish it were. I live in a tiny Manhattan apartment. Um, I've got three kids, all in the teenage, preteen years. Um, so it's not at all the glamour <laughs> one, would, uh, one would imagine. Um, so p- partly it's, it's um, uh, I try to be very efficient in my work. I, I don't, I've kind of gotten rid of most of the the frill and excess part of life, you know, shopping, cooking, um, watching TV, all that stuff is gone. I, I really try to focus on the things that are the most meaningful for me, seeing patients, um, writing, and I also um, have been taking cello lessons. That's been really a big part of my life and my family. Aside from that, you know, I haven't bought new clothes, I think, in 15 years. <laughs> um, but one decision I made, and actually was made for me when I was first hired, they only had a 60% spot opened in the hospital. And I'd never thought about working part-time, but that's what they had. I had student loans, so I took it. Then I began to use that extra time to write. And so when a full-time spot opened up, I ended up turning it down. And so the, the sacrifice I turned down that, you know, half of my salary for that. But I find that the time that I've gained is so much more valuable. Um, and, you know, as long as I, you know, earn enough to put food on the table and keep the roof over our heads, that's enough for me. And I'd much rather have the additional time, the additional money. So I've kept that, that 60% time and resisted efforts to expand that because the time for writing is so crucial. And then I write on the airplane. I, I write, you know, when I write free time early in the morning, late at night, um, and I just haven't watched a single new TV show in, you know, 20 years. <laughs> wow. I, uh, I, I don't even know what to say. Um, my, I, I, rely, uh, I rely on my husband to, to keep me up to date on that. Or I read, <laughs> I read the reviews in the New Yorker of all the new TV shows. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm, I've got to say I'm very impressed with your focus uh, and that you've, you've kept that. Uh, yeah, I just, I'm just really, really impressed. Um, well, I said, also, one other thing is, is learn to say no to everything. You know, do you want to be a mentor for this? Do you want to volunteer for that committee? Do you want to, you know, whether at work or kids' schools, I really say no to everything. You know, could you please do more interviews for medical students and house staff? They're all wonderful things, but if you say yes to them all, you lose all your time. So, so that's where I think the discipline really comes in is saying no. Otherwise, it doesn't feel like discipline because I love writing and I love music and I love seeing my patients. So that part doesn't feel discipline. Saying no to things, that, that does take some. Okay, well, Warren Buffett is famous for saying that too. So it seems like he's copied you, uh, and there you he's, go. Done, he's done okay in a little bit of a, a different realm. Yeah. <laughs> okay, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, your the recent book, "What Patients Say, What Doctors Hear," and we'll, we'll talk about the the other four uh, in a little bit. But um, how is this one different than the other four that you've written? Uh, I met you through uh, Common Narrator. Uh, I had uh, Ann Richardson narrate my book and then I'm like, oh my gosh, who else is there? And then I saw your book and I was like, oh my gosh, this is coming out around the same time. So uh, what, I guess just walk us through the book a little bit and how long did it take to put together? Uh, how did you decide on the stories? All of those good things. Well, I actually, the genesis came from 
from my prior book, What Doctors Feel, How Emotions Affect the Practice of Medicine. I'd been interested in doing a chapter in that book on doctor-patient friendships. And so I had found this interesting blog online of a doctor become friends with the patient. And I interviewed her and she told me about a very challenging patient, a young woman with difficult to diagnose illness and they had many conflicts over treatment. And as I'm reading the doctor's blog, I see comments from someone who might be that patient. And the short story is the patient gave me permission to talk to her as well. And she gave me her whole story. What was so fascinating was how different the two stories were. Two very intelligent women, thoughtful, um, uh, self-critical, but gave a completely different version of how things went. Now, that story ended up being cut out from the book on emotions, and, and that became the, the kernel of this new book, What Patients Say, What Doctors Feel. Uh, sorry, What Doctors Hear. <laughs> and, uh, because the patient described to me, it was like we were in a rowboat rowing in the opposite direction. And I think that's a sentiment that many patients have. Their doctor isn't necessarily being a mean or nasty person, but they hear things and see things differently and may have different priorities. Yeah, I've been in a marriage for almost nine years, and mm. I, I know that as soon as I see a certain silence or a certain anger, I immediately say, what did you hear me say? Right. what you heard me say and what I wanted to say are, are so different. Now, you talk in the book, and this is actually way towards the end of the book, and I remember it very clearly. I'm running past the... the I want to say Lincoln Memorial, uh, Washington Monument, and it just struck me so much that we, there was this doctor, I think it was diabetes, and he was working so hard to get this patient to, to improve, and it ended up pushing the patient away. Can you talk a little bit about how our conversations with a patient and wanting it more than they do actually push them away from us? Because doctors and patients have different priorities. And with this doctor and patient pair, which was another interesting pair who I got to interview, um, who are both, again, thoughtful, you know, um, intelligent, and no one was right or wrong, but there were different priorities. For the doctor, the diabetes was the most important thing. And for the patient, it was just one of many other things. And so when the doctor kept trying to get um, the patient to focus on the diabetes, the the patient saw that as, you know, irritating, goading, uh, being um, kind of over-involved. And she then drew away because she really had other things and she was feeling guilty about not doing as well in her diabetes as her doctor had wanted her to do. So I, I feel that um, we doctors only see patients at one tiny point in time, you know, 15 minutes, two or three times a year. But the patients have their whole other lives going on and, and um, you know, there are competing priorities. You have this uh, conflict and... Uh, the, the the patient's getting you know pushed away and frustrated. Um, what recommendations do you have to other health professionals to do a better job of listening? We say, well, you need to listen, but that's not necessarily, that's very general advice. What specific tips could you give someone as a health professional to do a better job of listening to the patient? That seems to permeate through your entire book. Well, one, one big area where I think we can make a concrete change is how we use the electronic medical record. The EMR, it's so overwhelming and there's so much to do in there while we're with patients that it's natural that we are working on the EMR at the same time as we're talking to patients. I had a patient this morning and, you know, it's very hard. I mean, I'd love to just talk all day with the patients and write my notes at night, but that there are not enough hours in the day. So I have to use the computer while we talk. But I think that impedes conversation a lot. So I try to remind myself to take the first minute, just that first one minute, 
and not use the computer, look straight at the patient, have a kind of full frontal uh, communication. And I think having the first minute of being heard from the patient's perspective, that's actually a lot. And then I might say something like, oh, I don't want to miss what you're saying. Do you mind if I take notes while you speak? And then I kind of open up the computer. So then the computer becomes secondary. And that little investment in communication, um, A, I can hear what's really going on. Because normally, as you know, we cut patients off in some like like 10 seconds or 12 seconds. Depending on gender, yeah. <laughs> Depending on gender. So a full minute is quite a bit of time yeah. to get your initial concerns on the table. Um, but you've also made an investment in the relationship. And that will pay off as the patients would more likely to trust you, be honest with you, tell you what's really going on. So that's my sort of number one thing that I tell caregivers in any format is to try and take a minute to just do full eye contact communication. Um, and then let's uh, talk a little bit. How have any of the other books besides maybe what doctors feel, uh, does medicine and translation, incidental findings or singular intimacies, do any of those feed into this book or are those separate entities? Well, th those three are a little bit more of medical memoir, writing the stories of patients I've worked with. But I think they do in that those were the experiences of, of me hearing the patient's story. In some uh, cases, it took many years for me to think about it fully and deeply enough to then write it down and, and examine my role in the story. So this was my sort of listening over a long period of time. And for many of them, I came to different conclusions years later. And I realized that if I had been a more astute listener, I might have tuned into those things earlier. So the conclusions I got by years of turning the story over in my head, writing, rewriting, revising, I try to take those into account when I listen now. So another thing that I suggest to caregivers and to myself is when I get stymied over a patient's inability to, for example, negotiate their diabetes, um, instead of, you know, reading them the riot act about, oh, you're going to have be blind and amputated on dialysis in a wheelchair, that kind of talk, I'll ask them, what's the hardest part about having diabetes? Because that, that question yields so much more information and so specific. And I feel if, if, if I'd asked those kind of questions earlier in my career, I think I might have done things a little bit differently. But it can bring up because, you know, I may think what I know or what I think their challenges are, but the patient may have completely different ones. You know, the cost of the medication or the medication causes diarrhea or sexual impotence, or they're embarrassed by using the syringe in front of other people. There's so many other reasons that, you know, we don't know and we don't get if we just say, oh, you're taking your meds? You know, yes, no question. So it sounds like you're talking about maybe uh, finding out what the patient's chief complaint is which might not be what is the most pressing medical concern, which maybe uh, a physician might think is the chief complaint or should be the chief complaint. Um, or maybe there's some kind of uh, distance between those two somehow. Right. Okay. And I would say also is to find out more about the patient's life. And we, you know, hear that advice all the time. But again, even a minute just to, you know, who they are, who you live with, what do you do, what's your life? Because again, for many patients, the things in their lives are much more pressing than their hypertension. You know, if they have an elderly parent, you know, who is ill or a child in another country who they can't communicate with or get to easily, these things really weigh on their mind. And if I don't, you know, and I try to, to I write those down. That's one of the beauties of the EMRs. I can write down these important facts. And then the next visit, I say, oh, you know, how is your daughter in Ecuador doing with her breast cancer? Because I know that's the most important thing for my patient. And then we can get to the diabetes. So trying to find out what else besides the medical issue is really weighing on the patient. 
Now, there's a lot of talk about being caregivers. I'm in the sandwich generation. My parents are 70, in their 70s. My children are five, five, and five. I have triplet five-year-old girls. So I'm definitely in that, you know, seeing uh caregiving for or will be caregiving for both. Um, but uh, tell me a little bit about when you're when you're with the patient. Um, I've heard that people use scribes. Uh, what made you choose or not choose to use a scribe while you're talking to them? It, it, it just sounds like it would make sense. Like you just call one up and they come right over and they're perfectly qualified. But uh, if, I had one, if I had one available, <laughs> we don't have them in our hospital. So I think it would be great in some ways because having someone do the writing. My only thought about the scribe is I worry about the intimacy. You know, there's something very intimate about a doctor and a patient or a nurse and a patient together in a room. And often the patients talk about, you know, very difficult and personal things. Would having a third party in there impede that at all? I don't know, you know, about that, but I, I do wonder how that might impact that. I would love if there was some mind reading device that could read my mind as I formulate my thoughts and just jot them down. That would be, <laughs> we haven't quite got there yet. Okay. Well, maybe the nanobots will come soon uh, and then we'll, we'll uh, or that somehow the Apple watch will be able to, to do that for us. Um, you've, yeah. you've done literary writing, you've done uh, popular writing. And then I also saw that you edited a medical textbook, the Bellevue guide to outpatient medicine. Um, not really how did you find time for it? You've kind of gone through that. But uh, tell me about the three different mindsets between literary, literary writing, popular writing, and then academic writing. Oh, yes. Quite, quite different. The textbook was a lot of fun to write. It was the, my first day that I showed up as an attending. I said, oh, we're writing a textbook. You want to do a chapter? I'm like, sure. What's the book? And it was an evidence-based guide to outpatient medicine. Uh, so one thing I learned is be careful what chapter you write because the only chapter left when I got there was anticoagulation. Oh, <laughs> that was fine. Okay. I became the director of the Coumadin Clinic for about <laughs> ten years. <laughs> so be careful what chapter you okay. write. But it was so it was so um, something liberating about writing academically for evidence based medicine because there could be uh, an answer. Like find the data, get the numbers down, and so it was very enjoyable to take a mass of data and corral it into behavior and make it understandable. That was really fun. Um, literary writing, completely different because then you really, there's no right or wrong way to do it. It's making it work. And some part of it is artistic. You, there's no judge of it. Is it good enough? Is it nice enough? Um, but you get to be more free and to really think about, oh, I can change the point of view. I can do flashbacks. I can turn the story on its head. I can still keep it truthful, but I can move the beginning to a different part of the timeline. Um, and often it's for, again, the revising process um, has much more in it than the actual writing because then I get to, I often will, the first draft, just write the story in order as it happened. And then I'll take it in the revision process and play around. So for example, I did a piece in my first book about an M&M, Morbidity and Mortality Round. <laughs> okay. And yeah. when I initially wrote the piece, I wrote the incident that happened and then going to the M&M and then reading the M&M. And I had my notes from the M&M so I could quote it exactly. Okay. But then I decided to uh, intertwine the voices. So rather than doing it in order, I would say what happened and then I could flip to the – right to the M&M and then read how we, you know, talk about them. So, for example, sure. in this particular uh, situation, we had to intubate someone um, who was uh, was very difficult and – uh, the surgeon and I, we're both residents, were wrestling down this poor patient who was having a horrific night. 
trying to get this tube down. I remember how awful it felt like we were raping this man. He was fighting and sputum's flying. It's three o'clock in the morning. We're sweating. We're in the ICU. No attendings are coming to help us. And it was just an agonizing, agonizing intubation. In the M&M, it's read as the patient was intubated with difficulty, period. <laughs> and so you could see by, by yeah. contrasting, so that, and the M&M, of course, was a, three weeks later, but putting them side by side was a way to show how different, you know, we, we um, process things in medicine. Here's how it happened, this dramatic, horrible situation. Here's how we process it. So literary writing gives you the chance to do those sorts of things that will put other things, you know, up, up into the, you know, under the microscope. Popular writing, and that has to be a little different because they do have to find ways to convey medical knowledge, information, without being didactic. Sure. Uh, of course, that comes up a bit in, in, in literary writing. But so trying to find, without saying, you know, this is what this medication does, just sort of mention it and try to get it in context so the reader gets it without feeling they've been told it. And that actually is, is quite a bit more difficult than it sounds. Diseases, medical processes, terminology, because you don't want to keep saying or keep putting footnotes, oh, this is what that is, this is what this is. So that's an interesting thing. And then the popular reader also wants a take-home message in a way that a literary reader doesn't necessarily want. So I have to get something to come from that. And again, I don't want to say, okay, here's the moral, you know, take your medications at eight o'clock in the morning, but to try and, and, and have it come across without being pounded in. Okay. I've, I've heard a number of poets have, uh, in their writing workshops, what they'll do is just cut off the last sentence, uh, so that <laughs> you don't steal the punchline from the reader. Exactly. Um, now your, uh, you know, writing reads like a who's who you write regularly for the New York times. Your essays have been in Los Angeles times, Washington post, Atlantic slate, New England journal of medicine, Lancet, CNN, national public radio, just for the authors out there. How? How does that how does that happen for someone? Okay, well, it goes bit by bit, and and you know people write all the time and say, oh, you know, how can I get into the New York Times, or can I have your editor's email? <laughs> of course, <laughs> you can't give out, but yeah. um, but that doesn't happen first. I mean, really, I started by publishing in literary magazines, much like the Bellevue Literary Review, and I encourage beginning writers to really make good use of these journals. They're fantastic resources. They're staffed by. People committed, you know, to, to writing and publication who are usually paid nothing, um, and these are great ways to get your first bits of writing published. I also recommend entering their writing contest because winning a contest is a great way. When I won a contest with a literary journal, you know, agents call, people see it, so those are very helpful. And then once you have publication credits, then you can start submitting to larger, you know, mainstream media because you have something behind you. Um, but it, it takes some time. I mean, for me, the New York Times came by invitation, but if, partly because they had read my work elsewhere as you graduate the publication ladder and invited me to, to write. And so each place you publish, someone else may see it. And, you know, keep a thick skin. I mean, my pile of rejections was so thick. And in fact, and your, you know, fledgling writer uh, listeners may appreciate this. I once had a piece that ended up actually in um, Best American Essays. And I got a email from a college professor in some English department somewhere in the Midwest saying, I love your essay, I use it in my teaching, blah, 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 you know, John Doe, professor of English, you know, their college, editor of the college literary journal. And I recognized the name of the journal. I went back and of course I'd submitted there and I'd gotten rejected for the very same essay. <laughs> now, he hadn't been editor then, uh -huh. but what was so interesting is I had the rejection and they had put these yellow sticky posts on there saying, oh, 
really dull piece. We use like a clinical case. Um, <laughs> you know, like, so it's very subjective. So don't take the rejections personally because it depends who's reading it, what day of the week, you know, what they else they have ready for publication. So every rejection is really subjective and just keep going, submit to multiple places and, and be very patient. But it does eventually, if, it's, if the writing's good, someone will eventually pick it up. Okay. Well, let's talk a little bit about, I was at the Examine Life conference down here in Iowa City. It's only two hours away, so an easy drive over. And I met Ken Brown, uh, who I believe created the documentary that you're in, Why Doctors Write. Can you tell me a little bit about how you met him or how uh, he contacted you and how you got started with that project? Because that seems uh, really engaging. You know, he did contact me and I've forgotten how he came across my work. But he wrote to me sort of out of the blue saying he's doing this documentary um, would I be interested in participating? It sounded like a lot of fun. So I introduced him to one of my, my favorite, in fact, my longest term patient who I had since I was an intern. And I will not tell you how long ago that was. <laughs> but this, this patient was discharged after having an MI, a heart attack with a, you know, a little discharge summary, you know, any new MD in clinic. And I was just, you know, picked up the random chart. I was an intern and we're still together all these years later. And we joke that we, we've lasted, we've outlasted healthcare reforms, various presidents, you know, e- our friends' marriages, <laughs> clinic redesign, we're still together. Oh, my but, goodness. Um, and so uh, we got to do this together, which was so much fun. He loved it. I loved it. Sort of tell our story together. Um, and it's a wonderful doc- – the documentary is still in progress as they're adding more and more parts to it. But there's uh, so many interesting, I think, aspects of why doctors write, how doctors learn about writing, what's the role of medical humanities in, in education and patient care. So there's, there's much coming from Ken Brown. Yeah. Um, well, that actually segues into the TED Talks. Um, I just, I, I've, I watch TED Talks religiously. I love them. But I've never actually talked to someone who did a TED Talk to tell me what it was like. So can you tell me the story of, you know, how do you get to a TED Talk? What's it like, you know, getting there, actually like parking the car, getting in there, getting up on stage, getting off of stage. You know, I, I guess I, I have this Hollywood image of it and I feel like <laughs> it might not quite be that. But but tell me about the Deconstructing Perfection TED Talk first. Sure, sure. So again, those were both by invitation, I guess, because people start to see your published work. Um, so they contacted me. I was thrilled and absolutely honored. And But it was a very hard process. We worked together. They're very hands-on editors. I would say more than almost any other thing that that I've done, where um, you know we, we hammered out an idea and then I worked on this and I would say we did fifty iterations uh, of the piece. Yeah, five easily they were five zero, wow. very hands on. Um, and then we we did practice sessions and read and we still modified it. We'd meet with often a bunch of TED speakers together and do a session where you know eight or ten people would would work on their talks. We get feedback, people from. Ted were there, other, the other speakers. Um, so it was a very long um, and detailed involved process. And then, of course, I'd memorize the whole thing, um, you know, really kind of speaking. And it's a very tight, you know, time schedule, 11 or 12 minutes. So you can't just ramble on. You really need to know what you're going to say. So that was pretty hard, too, to memorize, you know, all, all those pages and work on that. Um, so it was many, many hours of work went, went into that. But really fun. 
Um, I can't tell you about parking the car because I'm from Manhattan. I don't know. <laughs> <the car. laughs> okay. But I took the train. <laughs> uh, but then it was really fun. And once we were there, you're really treated nicely. And, um, and you know, someone takes care of really all the details. It was ex- the TED Med conference, extremely well organized. And someone just takes care of everything for you down to, you know, hair and makeup for getting on stage and, and your time scheduling. That was really, it was so nice, you know, working in a city hospital where I do everything for myself. It was really nice to have someone sort of take care of the details for at least 24 hours in in my life. And then really fun. It was very fun to be on the stage. um, And the audience is really nice and very attentive. And then later on, you know, after the talk, there's no Q&A during the talk, but afterwards, there's lots of time for Q&A. And that was really wonderful. Meeting other speakers, seeing them evolve in their talks was a, a lot of fun. And then um, tell me a little bit about the audience. And as I saw you up there, every once in a while, you'd get this, uh, you know, great response. And then there were some parts that didn't get a response. Uh, How do you respond when you're getting the responses? Or how did you uh, work with the audience, especially with that second TED Talk, the fear and necessary emotion for doctors? Uh, Because that was a bit of a longer one. Uh, And you had real like highs and lows. And I'm like, this is a it's I'm like, it's like I'm watching this drama go up and down. Uh, Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. It's it's so crucial to have the audience response um, when people and sometimes response is laughing. Sometimes it's sort of looking at you, staring straight at you if they're caught, you know, in a dramatic moment. It's impossible to do this to um, a blank room because you just it, it's a synergistic process. And the more the audience seems engaged, the, the better you can get as the speaker. And for me, I find it works so well, which is why I don't use PowerPoint in any of my lectures. I was just. Um, at the University of Missouri Columbia last week, um, and you know they always ask, "Oh, do you have your PowerPoint?" I'm like, "Nope, no PowerPoint," because with PowerPoint, the audience is looking at the slides, not at you. And and I and I find when I do that, I lose the connection, and then I'm a worse speaker, which to me is so interesting because when I did the research for this book, I found a lot of research about how listeners affect the speaker, in particular. In the case of doctor-patient um, talking, when this patient's speaking, if the doctor isn't listening attentively, the patient's story falls apart. And that, of course, can have all kinds of you know ramifications, medical error, misdiagnosis. But even as a public speaker, when my audience isn't connected, my story falls apart. Like if the students are like on Facebook and you know, they're, you know, I, I, do, I do a worse job. So getting rid of PowerPoint was a really good way of trying to maximize the audience and interaction. And when I feel like that, you know, I think that something that I think is funny, there's no reaction. (laughs) That's a really tough moment. (laughs) Uh, And then I go back like, that that line does not work. You know, it does not, it's not resonating with people. And whereas some lines, people laugh like, that wasn't funny, but they seem to have found it funny. But it definitely, it, it helps so much to have an engaged audience. Um, well, I, we want to keep this to, to about 30 minutes. Uh, most people listen to it on their drive time between 6 and 9 in the morning. Um, but I do want to, since it's the pharmacy podcast, I'm a pharmacist. Um, how do you recommend that pharmacists work with physicians? Uh, this new group of students, uh, the interprofessional bit is in the accreditation documents. Nurses or nursing students, uh, medical students, pharmacy students are working well together, playing nicely. Um, but how do practitioners that are out there uh, do a good job of working with physicians? Uh, what recommendations might you have? Oh, I I love when the pharmacists call me because they always have relevant, important information. 
I mean, the rare time where a call is for something that, you know, they could have known themselves, that can be frustrating. But it's really the case. Honestly, the, the pharmacists have so much information about the patient and the medications they're taking that I appreciate their calls. It makes my life so much easier when the pharmacist calls and says, hey, you know, this patient's also taking this from another doctor. You may not know that. Or the patient's got, you know, two conflicting prescriptions here. And I may not have noticed the drug interaction, partly because, you know, we get those little alerts, but we get, you know, a hundred of them per patient. Alert fatigue. You know, we can't, there might be one important one, but there's 500, you know, alerts about how alcohol pads and Coumadin interact. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Oh, the EHR. There is no prioritization. (laughs) Disable, copy and paste. (laughs) Yeah, I know. So so I really, because almost always it's it's meaty clinical information and that is such a help. Um, The other thing I often don't know about is cost. Um, And they'll say, oh, this is not covered. This costs X amount. Um, What frustrates me is that I'll get usually from the pharmacy, I mean, the pharmacist saying, you know, this medication needs prior approval. And I'm saying, could you just tell me which other one is covered by the insurance? Like, that's what I really learned. I have to go sit and look in the formula. If you know which it is by this insurance, just tell me, I'll just switch it. I'd love for that to come with the prior authorization request. So you're talking about uh, when this is even going into the classroom where if someone comes to you with a problem, make sure you come to me with two or three solutions uh, so that, you know, we can just hammer it out right now. Right. Because in general, you know, it's rare that I insist on this one medication above all others. Listen, this is the PPI that I know. And if Nexium isn't covered, I don't know it's not covered. So I don't want to put it. I just want to know which PPI is covered. I'm going to put it on That's fine. Just give yeah. me something with Maybe a Prozole ending. Yeah. Just tell me which one is yeah. covered in that formula and I will change it. And, you know, I'll be your best friend for life. <laughs> awesome. Well, I just have three quick hit questions at the end here. Uh, what's the best daily ritual to keep your work on track? Ah, the best ritual. Um, for me, playing cello every night, having that hour of nothing with medicine, nothing with writing, nothing with patients or kids or anything, of just focusing on something that, that is uh, is more pure, is clearing of the mind and restorative of the soul. And then I can wake up the next morning and get back to medicine and writing and my kids. And they were patient with you as you were getting to become a good cello player? Uh, <laughs> <It was laughs> <Okay>. cool. <laughs> the beginning of the strange is pretty painful, but yes, they were very patient and uh, remain patient because it never never gets great. Okay. You've had a lot of careers or a certain not necessarily a lot of careers, but a lot of different aspects and facets to your career. What's the best career advice you ever received or have given? Well, I would say being open to the unplanned, because I didn't plan any of this. And when I decided to take a year and a half off after medical training, every one of my advisors said it's a bad idea. You'll lose your medicine. You'll lose your connections. You'll never get back into academic medicine. I went anyway, and it was the most amazing thing to go on a different path. And then the writing career opened up to me and the editing career of a literary journal. I hadn't planned on that. But if I'd stayed on the straight and narrow path that I'd been marching on since I was you know, 21 years old, I would have missed all of this. So be open to serendipity. And the last question, what inspires you? My patients, it's endlessly interesting. And whenever I hear people talk about getting burned out in medicine or students or senior doctors, I try to refer them back to thinking about the beauty and joy of being privileged to be in people's lives and hear their stories. I mean, listen, you could be in a cubicle working with spreadsheets, you know, and widgets all day, but we get this amazing privilege of being in people's lives and with tools to potentially make people's lives a little bit better. What could get better than that?
Yeah, it sounds like you're making lives a, a lot better. Well, thank you so much for being on the Pharmacy Podcast. You're very welcome. And I invite people to check out the Bellevue Literary Review. Um, I also post all my articles on my website, danielleofrey.com. And I keep a little email list if you're interested in articles about communication or medical humanities. You know, there's a place to sign up there if you'd like. Sounds good. We'll put that on the show notes. Thanks so much. Thank you. Have a great day. Okay. Thanks for listening to the Pharmacy Future Leaders Podcast with your host, Tony Guerra. Be sure to share the show with the hashtag Pharmacy Future Leaders. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.